Fish Bites Podcast. I'm Aram Layton, your host, and I'm joined by Adam McInturf, the Assistant Director of Scouting for 2080 Baseball. It's going to be really fun today. A lot of prospect analysis to talk about. Last time I had you on, it was before the draft. We were talking about guys yeah. that could potentially be selected by the Marlins. Now, obviously, we got to see all of these guys, these young high school bats. You got to see them firsthand. So thank you for being on today. I'm excited to get going. We're going to talk about the Greensboro guys. We're going to talk about the guys in the Yelich trade. And we're going to have a little bit of buy or sell on some prospects that had some good seasons, but whether we think it's going to stay or go. And uh, so once again, thank you for coming on, Adam. Yeah, my pleasure. Should be fun. Let's get going. It's good. Yeah, and it's been an interesting season so far in pro ball for the Marlins. Of course, a lot of people paying attention to the minor leagues. Not much to watch in the major leagues. A lot of prospects that we've seen develop slowly here. A farm system that went from the basement of the league now to the middle of the pack, I would say. Uh, you guys just put out a, a pretty good recap of the entire season so far for a lot of the Marlins top prospects, a lot of guys you saw firsthand and your grades on them. And we will have that linked in the article and we will have it shared on our site where you can check that out. But we'll be talking about a lot of those guys. First and foremost, Connor Scott, first round pick, 13th overall. You saw him plenty this season. Obviously young, 18 years old, uh, has a lot to figure out. But he was rushed to single A, just like Osiris Johnson was and Will Banfield. And they were definitely overmatched, as as you said in your write-up. What did you see from Connor Scott? Can you, could you see what the Marlins saw in him uh, from what you saw? And uh, what did he really struggle with? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, he's a good name of the three that you mentioned, uh, the three high school bats they took early in the draft this year, Connor Scott, Osiris Johnson, and Will Banfield. Um, like you said, all three got pushed to uh, Class A Greensboro, which is, for those that don't know or don't follow this as closely, that's considered a pretty aggressive assignment. Um, moving a player of this age and pro experience uh, – out of both uh, complex ball, the GCL, but stepping over the New York Penn League entirely, where they have that affiliate in uh, Batavia. I still, it's it's still Batavia, right? Yes, for now. Yes. Yeah, I I, I I I think it is. Yeah, uh, all all these affiliates are moving around this week, you know. Um, so uh, yeah, no, but you know, all all three struggled, but absolutely, I I, I saw the appeal of all three, but with Scott, uh, certainly. Um, it's a physical frame. I'd say, you know, he's on the thinner side, but he's going to grow into a big league body. Um, he certainly looks the part in center field. Uh, Left-handed hitter with loose hands at the plate. Um, type of swing that makes a lot of contact. There, there were some issues in my look with him in the South Atlantic League. I thought staying through the ball, um, he leaked his front hip a little bit and dragged off the ball, and there was some swing and miss. Uh, there was chases on spin, especially against left-handed pitching. But to some degree, this stuff uh, isn't, you know, reason to raise the alarm because he's 18. He was playing against high school pitchers, you know, albeit in Florida and pretty good high school pitching, but high school pitching nonetheless uh, just a few months ago. And, you know, it, it, it was a challenge. And he, he looked his age and he looked his experience at times, but, but, but the tools showed through. I think you're looking at a guy uh, to wrap it up on Connor Scott. He's he's a player that you can see at least four tools 
and his ability to stay in the middle of the field and play center field and um, run because he's actually for a guy that's about six three or six four, he's an above average runner. He runs pretty well, and uh, his ability to hit the ball, his ability to hit for average. So that's four tools. And I think the question is, you know, long term, as he adds strength to this projectable frame, is he going to be able to stay in center field? And uh, how much power is going to develop for him? But it's it's the mold of you know I'm not comparing him to a Christian Yelich or a, a you know uh, Kyle Tucker, but it's 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 that type of mold. You know it's 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 that type of tall, rangy, uh, hit first left-handed hitter. So there's 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 a lot to be excited about with him. I don't want to go on and on too much. Um, but I, I think there, it, it requires projection, but absolutely you saw the tools that made him a 13th pick in the draft. So one of the things you guys do a really good job of at 2080 Baseball is providing really good video of the players that you're scouting for uh, fans to see and for guys like us, for like me and writers to see a little bit of insight on what you guys are seeing of these players. Mm-hmm. You had a lot of video on Connor Scott, and it was not too pretty. It showed a lot of what you were talking about there with that front side leaking open, drifting towards the ball a little bit. Obvious signs of someone that's cheating a little bit and that's overmatched, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I saw that for sure. So what was the point of of, of rushing them to single A there if you're almost forcing bad habits on on these kids? I use the word kids because they're 17, 18 years old. Yeah, no, it's true. And and especially in the case of Osiris Johnson, who's so young for the class, I mean, like a full calendar year younger uh, than Connor Scott, it, it it was a bit of a head scratcher. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, you know, uh, I have talked to some coaches in the organization about these guys uh, when I'm there seeing their affiliates, but I, I didn't ask that question specifically. I think if you're a coach on this staff, you <laughs> You're, you're happy to have gotten these guys, but yeah, it does from the outside seem like a bit of a head scratcher. Um, why players this young were pushed there, what the sense is in having a kid struggle, um, whether that's really worth it when you consider there are other levels they'd be playing at. I don't know. I think it probably goes two ways. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there, there could likely be very legitimate reasons to do it that are organizational, um, based on coaches, based on playing time, things that I don't know without a, you know, intimate knowledge of the organization or the player development department, but certainly, um, you know, it, it, it stood out and it, it, it was a little unusual. For instance, like Nolan Gorman was kind of the talk of short season ball, him and Wander Franco, the way Nolan Gorman came out hitting, uh, tore through the Appalachian league after being, I think like the 18th or 19th overall pick this June and he got called up to the Midwest league and that's the equivalent of the South Atlantic league. And it was like a big deal when he got called up, people were like, wow, this is a guy, you know, his first pro summer pro debut hit so well in the Appy league and he's already in the Midwest league. And, you know, that was the guy that hit the best in short season ball, arguably of any 2018 draftee. So, you know, to see Banfield Johnson and Scott moved up, to full season low A in the same way uh, that Gorman was, was definitely a surprise. And the thing with, with, with Scott though, to, to wrap up Scott, you see the tools there. He's a little awkward, but I think that's kind of from his lanky, yeah. skinny build. I don't think he's as awkward as he looks, but, but yeah, there's, there's some, there's some, you know, bony, bony elbows, bony knees as it were. 
And and you mentioned he could put up what you said in in your write up is he could put up to thirty pounds of muscle on which would make him essentially a completely different player. And and that's what we have to remember that we're dealing with an eighteen year old here, where not even fully developed, still growing potentially. Um, what do you did you think in a nutshell to just to, to to wrap this up here? Did the Marlins make the right pick? It's early, I know, but if if you were the Marlins, would you have taken Connor Scott at 13 with the organizational needs? And do you think that that might have been the right move there? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll say two things. When you're in a situation like the Marlins, um, things like organizational need or uh, time frame or, you know, the window of competitiveness of the big lead level, you kind of got to throw those things out because they're trying to build this thing from the bottom up. So uh, I think you pair that with the fact that in years past, Stan Meek and that amateur scouting group, uh, they've always shown some predisposition to the high school athlete. And I think that's why you saw a guy like Johnson uh, and then, you know, another high school pick, Banfield, go where they did. Even their top college pick, Tristan Pompey, is kind of more of a toolsy athlete guy, even for a college pick. So all that considered, no, I'm not surprised Scott went 13. And I think it's way too early to say that it was a mistake. Um, ultimately time will tell, but pushing three 17 and 18 year old kids up to the South Atlantic league and having them struggle, uh, for the last, you know, 25 to 40 games of the year or so, I, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I, I think it was something like that. Um, you know, I don't think that's fully representative of the types of players these guys are. And in all three cases, I saw tools that uh, stood out well above the stat line. So I, I think you really have to throw away the numbers with these guys from the first pro summer because of their unusual assignment to Class A um, and just kind of look to the future for what it's going to be. Absolutely. And I've actually gotten more excited about Scott as, as since the draft. When they made the pick, I knew they were, we knew they were probably going to go after an out, outfield bat, a prep bat. We talked about that in the last podcast. but. I was really hoping that they'd maybe go after an arm. Uh, Who are you hoping for? Maybe a Brady Singer type of guy. Scott, Scott I was, was rumored to them the whole time. Okay, for, for Singer. Scott was they, – they were linked to Scott. I mean, I, I'm not really on the draft beat, so like, but, but even I – they were kind of linked to Scott uh, last week or yeah. so, if, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I, I, mentally, I mentally prepared for that pretty well. But I was hoping maybe with the fall – with Brady Singer falling that they might last second snatch him up. But – Nonetheless, I, we have a lot of time to tell. And, and another guy you saw that's even younger than Scott, we talked a little bit about already, so it was Cyrus Johnson, 17 years old. 17 yeah, really years young. old, probably the youngest player in pro ball right now. Um, you, you mentioned in your write-up, obviously overmatched as well, uh, expanded the zone a little bit too much, chasing natural stuff you'd expect from a 17-year-old playing in, in, in single-A ball. What did you what did you like from him so far too? He, he's a good athlete, but you said he could potentially move to third base. Definitely flashes some power for a seventeen year old. He shows some strength. What do you think he could project into, and what did you like from what you saw so yeah, far? Yeah, um, he's probably he, of of all three guys that were there. Uh, he he was the most raw for sure, and he, he he's also the youngest. But you kind of you kind of look at his background. Um, he wasn't as much, you know, I, I think he's like Jimmy Rollins' nephew or something like that. Uh, is does, does that sound right to you? Like, he, he comes from a baseball family. Yes, that is correct. He actually trained yeah, with Jimmy. Yeah, okay. So he comes from a baseball family, but 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 he wasn't 
on the showcase circuit as much. He's really, really young for the class. Like, he could technically be a high school senior right now. Like, he, he could have been a 2019. Um, he, uh, you know, and, and while, while you said, yeah, he's, he's athletic, it's, I mean, it, basically a lot of the same things that I said about him coming out of the draft is, is kind of what I saw uh, when I saw him in Greensboro. I, I, I think that he would have been better suited just spending the entire season in the GCL, in my opinion. Um, but it's a, he's a physical kid and while he's athletic, he's not really a shortstop for me. I, I, I think that that was clear even from a four game look, uh, even an a ball. I, I just think this is a kid while he's going to get better with the glove. Uh, he's gonna probably polish his actions up moving left and right. His arm is plenty for the left side of the infield. It just seemed to me between what's kind of a medium, already fairly muscular body type, how much bigger he's going to get. And the fact that he's, you know, probably a step, a step and a half short for shortstop. You know, it, it just really takes you, you have to be a very special defender to really be a big lead shortstop. It's not really a knock on Johnson's defensive ceiling. I think he could actually be quite a good defensive third baseman. Um, but s- same, same as they drafted a guy, James Nelson, a few years ago who had a lot of these traits and similarly moved off shortstop. I kind of expect that to be the path for Osiris moving forward. No, Osiris. Has a big swing. I, he, he definitely does not. Allowed get though, yeah. Do you do you think he has the power to projectable Absolutely. power to to hold down a quarter yes. infield? Like spot? if if he were to figure it out with the hit tool and make enough contact, does he have enough power potential for a corner? Yes, in my opinion, absolutely, one hundred percent. I came away really enthused. If like who of of all these three guys. He's the youngest, but probably has the most potentially impactful offensive tools right now. I mean, he's the strongest of the three. He's got the fastest bat of the three. When he squares it up, he probably has the most present power of the three and may always have the most present power. We'll see how much stronger Connor Scott gets. But no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty high on Johnson's offensive potential. It's just really a matter of his hit tool and approach because those are right now hovering around the roll 20, you know, or sorry, uh, like 20 grade, you know, he's, he's, he's a 20, two or 20 or 30 grade hitter, which in our systems means he's either not ready even for a ball or maybe next year you could say he's ready for a ball. So you put a present 30 on him, but uh, that and the approach um, recognizing spin and controlling the zone much more uh, the offensive objectives for Johnson, not necessarily needing to get stronger, get to more power. I think he comes by that naturally. I feel like guys like like Johnson make your job pretty difficult because they're 17 years old. They're so raw. They can develop month to yeah. month, you know, where he could figure something out and and completely overhaul his swing because he's like not even seen anything beyond high school pitching. So he he could make leaps and bounds in such yeah. a short period say, of time. So I've learned with guys. If you're encouraged age, by those something, I'm, sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just wanted to make sure that I got. No, go uh, I just ahead. want to make sure I got this in. <laughs> but guys this age, especially, uh, I, I really love scouting the South Atlantic League and the Midwest League for this reason. It's because you get the sometimes 17, but 18, 19-year-old kid in his uh, first or second year of professional baseball. And you see these tools and you see the rawness. It's an area, the lower you go in the minors, where from an organization standpoint, you feel you can really out-hustle, out-work teams, and maybe you can you can beat teams lower in the minors like this. 
And it's important to see these guys early and late in the season, I've found. I've, I've gotten burned in the past, my first few years doing this, at least on the pro side, once I transitioned over from the amateur stuff. Uh, like, I, I probably came in too low on uh, Rafael Devers, for instance, because he was a younger guy that was overmatched at a higher level as a teenager in the first half of the year, and I didn't go back and see him in the second half. I'm not saying I didn't think he was a dude. I'm just saying I, I didn't think he was as good as he turned out to be. Um, Josh Naylor was a guy a lot like this that same year that I saw him as a 17, 18-year-old in the South Atlantic League. This is actually when he was still with the Marlins before that trade, San Diego. And he became a completely different uh, hitter in the second half of the season. Um, there are just instances where kids this age, when they're playing at this level, you really, really need to see them early. You need to see them late. Because when they have talent, when they have ability, and all three of these kids they drafted have talent, um, even after, you know, two or three, 400 more at bats or plate appearances and more game reps, um, as they get acclimated to the level and acclimated to the schedule of professional baseball, you know, the tools really start to come out. And, uh, that's part of the reason why it's so important to look at month to month or first half, second half splits when you're looking at prospect stats, not just a full season stat line. And it's obviously something that I know, uh, all professional scouts keep in mind. So Johnson absolutely fits that bill. Scott will be the same way. Uh, when they open up what I imagine they'll be in low A again, uh, though I think it's they'll be in the Midwest League next year, but they'll open up in low A again, and it'll be important to see them late in the year because I think they could both come a long way after one full season of Pro Bowl. In wrapping up the this year's draft picks, Will Banfield, probably, I think, the best value pick the Marlins made in the draft, a guy that by the second round in those compensation rounds, a lot of teams probably thought yeah, I don't think people thought they wasn't signable. Time. Marlins were able to lock him down. I, I didn't think so either. And when the Marlins were able to, to sign him, I was honestly floored. Uh, he obviously has the highest floor, in my opinion, uh, with, with his defensive ability. At the very least, could project to a backup catcher, I think, worst-case scenario. The bat, obviously... A little behind. You watched him plenty. Did hit three home runs. Did show the the present power, uh, but also a lot of swing and miss, a lot of expanding the zone, a lot of typical stuff like we've said over and over again that you're going to see from teenagers. How good was he defensively? And do you think his bat could ever develop into somewhat of a, a, a respectable hitter? To yeah. Yes. Uh, how, how good is he defensively? Very good. And will his uh, bat be enough to back up the glove for an everyday role? Yeah, I, I, I think there's a chance. Like, he's, he's not so lost to the plate um, that there's no chance this kid's going to hit. I'll say, like you said, I think overall his floor is the highest because he's a lock to stay in a premium position, and your glove can get you a lot farther, probably a catcher, even than center field and shortstop. Um, really, really nice receiver. Uh, very polished. I liked the way, in terms of game calling and running the defense, he didn't seem like an 18-year-old kid at all. He seemed like he'd been out there and he'd be playing with these guys all year. Uh, he didn't show any fear. He took charge, and I, I always like to see that in catchers, especially young ones. Um He's like a six foot, 200 pound kid. Like, I'd say both Connor Scott and Osiris Johnson, both of those body types are going to get a lot stronger and bigger and look a lot different 
when they're 25 than they do right now at 17 and 18. I'll say that the 25-year-old Will Banfield will probably look physically a good amount like he does now. He's a little bit more mature, and he's grown into his man strength a little bit more. But that's kind of where the present power comes from, like you said. It's not the quickest bat. Um, there's a little bit of length. And I think he actually, you, you said he chases. Um, I might have put that in my spotlight, but I, I think... I don't think he chases a ton so much as there just it wasn't the fastest bat and he was beat upstairs by some velo and swung through spin. Like I I think he has a sense of the zone, uh, which is common considering he's a really good defensive catcher. So he's you know he sees the strike zone quite a bit, um, but he he just didn't put the bat on the ball sometimes. And I think that he's not really going to be an impact hitter. But if I have to take a choice uh, with a defensive oriented catcher like him, and I have a guy that hit for some average and no power or take walks and uh, have a sense of the zone and hit for power and play that good defense at catcher, I'll probably take the latter option. And I think that uh, his ability to, I think he'll turn into a guy that even if he's a lower average bat, he's going to run into some pitches. He's going to have, I don't know, in, in, in the best, best case scenario, he's a 15 to 20 home run guy, but, but, but he, he, even if it's like a 10 to 14 home run type, lower average bat with plus defense at catcher, he gets on base via the walk, and that's kind of in the mold of what today's starting catchers look like. So uh, I totally agree with you. I think the Marlins amateur scouting group deserves quite a bit of credit for uh, getting all these guys signed, having this in the works, and knowing their numbers enough to make sure they all got signed. Uh, and Banfield, um, nice mix of floor and ceiling on him for sure. And I love how you mentioned the the intangibles, you know, the, his his attitude. Because I had Banfield on the podcast a couple months ago, right after the draft, and I loved his attitude towards the game. I loved uh, pretty much everything yeah, about it, it, it the kid's through. personality. It goes through when uh, you watch him he play. Definitely had the absolutely, absolutely, and he had those those intangibles that made you feel really good about what he could potentially do in a game like baseball where it can get so difficult, especially in the minor leagues, or you feel like you're almost hitting the wall sometimes to have a guy like that, that you can tell is mentally tough. He's going to put his head down and not shy away from anybody as an 18 year old in pro ball. And that's something that I, I'm really excited to see him develop as he goes on. And I think the three high school picks here to wrap it up is pretty much a vote of confidence in Gary Denbo and the, and the new emphasis on player development that we're seeing here, but we're going to continue in Greensboro, but move on from these, from these draft picks here. A guy that you've talked about a little bit and, and done a little bit of a profile on, Edward Cabrera, kind of emerged out of nowhere, international free agent, uh, obviously extremely volatile. You've, you've tabbed him as high risk, but also you've tabbed him as a guy that's been a pleasant surprise, high velo, some good stuff. What can you tell us about Edward Cabrera and, what do you think made him come out of nowhere and turn into a somewhat of yeah, a prospect? Yeah, I think he's, well, I, I think he's definitely a prospect we're talking about. Um, and in terms of what had him come out of nowhere, you know, you you mentioned an emphasis on player development, uh, something I've definitely noticed watching a number of Marlins affiliates this year. In uh, since the Jeter era, there there is a tangible difference in the energy and focus on the developmental aspect, and I think. You're going to see them start to cultivate more out of this pipeline as 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 a result. Um, Cabrera, you know, I, I think guys with this body type and guys with this skill set, he's right at the age where they start to just get better. And I think he's going from 
a skinny, athletic adolescent, really, maybe 16, 17-year-old, to a little bit more of a physically developed uh, 19, 20-year-old. And with that comes the gains and stuff that probably, you know, were expected. And I know I've talked to some people from the organization. This guy's had fans uh, in the org for a long time. And I think that their Dominican folks were pretty well aware of the upside that he had. So I think for people that have been around the player for a little bit longer, uh, they aren't as surprised that he kind of broke out and showed the stuff he did this year as as, as I was. I'll, I'll be honest, I, I didn't know much about him going into this year. But uh, like you said, I did tab him as a pleasant surprise. He's your, you know, your, your, your typical hard-throwing, projectable, athletic, 6'4", 6'5", type, lean and wiry, um, runs his fastball as high as 97, 98 miles an hour, and sits in the mid-90s with a pretty lively arm side movement. He's moved from a slider to a true curveball around the middle of this year, and it was a much, much better pitch. That's both according to all their pitching coaches and, frankly, what what I saw, too. Um, but really the the takeaway because i i saw cabrera early in the season i saw him late the takeaway from the staff with greensboro was how much of a better pitch it was as a true curveball than a slider um he overthrows a changeup like high 80s type but that flash good action even though he overthrows it um i think that pitch has potential too so you know there, there there's the standard issues with control and command with a teenage hard thrower that you, you know, that kind of is expected with this profile. But at end of the day, this is a young arm that's running up in the high nineties and flashing two off speed pitches that can miss bats. And for that reason, he's, you know, one of the highest ceiling arms in the system. I'd probably say certainly uh, the highest ceiling arm in the low minors that they have in the system right now, at least for me. And do you think Cabrera is a guy that could definitely project into a starter, or would he fall back into kind of yeah? A that's that's role that's a good call. I think leagues? it's uh, he'll have every chance to develop as a starter. I saw games he you know was starting to make developments, repeating his delivery a little bit better, commanding his fastball a little bit better by season's end. But no, I I I don't want to say he's a reliever for sure, but this type of pitcher, especially at this age. Uh, it's generally a pretty variable profile, so I wouldn't say he's a slam dunk to be a starter, but it's big league stuff, and I do think this is a big league arm in some capacity and a guy that Marlins prospect followers should get to know for sure. Another guy that flashed some impressive tools but also got roughed up a little bit is, is Trevor Rogers. Struck out as many as twelve in one in one outing. I mean that that's not a fluke. He his strikeout numbers are great. Averaged well over a strikeout per inning. What do you think about Trevor Rogers so far from his first pro season? From what you've seen from him, and do you think that this is a guy that really looks like the first round pick that the Marlins took a chance? Yeah, on uh, a couple years I mean back? you you see why he went where he did in the draft for sure. Um, in terms of being a lefty with that body type and the tantalizing stuff and miss bad ability. Like, yeah, I, I'd see, I see why he, he went where he did in the draft. Um, I saw him a couple times this year with Greensboro. Thankfully, you know, they, they had a lot of talent coming through that roster this year. So they were a nice watch in a stack South Atlantic league this year, actually it, it, it was a nice year in that league, but um, 
you know, Rogers was inconsistent. Uh, he had times where he showed those flashes, as as you mentioned. Um, it's a six foot five, six foot six lefty with a tough slot to pick up on. A lot of moving parts coming at you with the fastball that touched, you know, ninety four. I I I got him as high as like ninety five. People say he was a little bit better than that at best this year, but you know, let's say he's he's a mid nineties lefty at best, uh, who hides the ball. And, you know, it had had his moments with both the slider and changeup. I was actually surprised to find in my looks that the changeup looked a little bit more consistent in the head of the slider. Uh, I, I wouldn't have expected that. But, um, you know, I, I think the future's bright for him. He's a, he's, he was a little bit old for the class. Like, I, I think despite uh, being drafted from high school in 2017, I think he's already, like, 20. Um, but that's, but that's still plenty young. I mean, we, we shouldn't talk about 20 years old, like he's an old man and he's the type of body that takes a couple years to grow into anyway, because he was so big and thin and gangly, uh, coming out of high school. So I don't know. I, I, I think all in all, uh, he's, he's a bit of a wait and see, but is, but is he definitely a prospect? Absolutely. Uh, I just think he is absolutely of the, uh, high risk high reward variety. I kind of bin him in the same category as an Edward Cabrera. And do you think he's a guy that could ever crack those top? Sure, I think they both could. I think both of these guys have the potential to uh, land on the top 100 and 150 prospects in the game at some point before they get to the big league. Sure. I don't think either of them will be in the 125 for us. But I'll say if we built our top prospect list out to maybe 250 or 300, I do think they would probably be in that tier. So they're they're high upside guys. Um, like I said, both profiles are pretty variable. Uh, there's risk reward, but I think uh, patience and the upside could be worth waiting on. So they're 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 both names to follow. And as of now, they're synced up in their development. So. It'll be nice to see these two move together throughout the system. I think they both probably uh, start next year in Jupiter. With the Marlins pitching situation right now, Sandy Alcantara has started to look pretty good. Jose Urania has started to hit his stride a little bit, but he's probably not <laughs> in their Marlins long-term plans, neither is Dan Straley. The Marlins don't really have that many pitchers in their system where you can look ahead and say, okay, he's projects to be in the rotation in a couple of years. The Marlins can count on him to hopefully be in the rotation in a couple of years outside of Sandy for the most part. Do you think Edward Cabrera and Trevor Rogers could potentially be two of those guys that could uh, anchor down the Marlins again, rotation in I a couple of years? I think that both guys' absolute best-case ceiling is that type of pitcher, yes. Uh Historically speaking, is there a significant likelihood that both of these pitchers wind up reaching their absolute best-case scenario ceilings? No. I mean, I, I think just given the variability and attrition of pitching prospects, let alone pitching prospects this far away and in the minors, you know, I, I think it would be a little early to say that, you know, Marlins 2022 rotation is anchored by Trevor Rogers and Edward Cabrera for sure. Um, but by the same token, as you were saying, you know, we don't have anybody save for Alcantara that we can pencil in for sure. That's a prospect down the road in the rotation. There really aren't many of those by the same token. I mean, and, and especially with the landscape of pitching injuries, 
uh, and kind of how that's starting to go, you really don't get too many of those pitching prospects. And when you do, you know, they're, they're the blue chippers. They're, they're, they're the few and far between. So I don't think it's a knock on Rogers and Cabrera to say there's some risk and say, you know, I, I, I wouldn't pencil them in into the future rotation necessarily, but yeah, by the same token, uh, I think the upside for both of them is a mid rotation starter. So, you know, with, with, with all that said, obviously you keep your fingers crossed and hope that they can both reach their ceilings in the rotation. Christian Yelich looks like an MVP right now. He's my MVP pick. Uh, the Marlins obviously dealt him away in the offseason. And at the I still time, think it, was a good, it was a really yeah. good return. I still think it was a great return. But, yeah, and, and you had mentioned it was, it was a good return. We, we can't judge one season. We can't judge a trade return on one season here. Uh, but I, I do want to ask you about some of these guys and what your interpretation is after seeing them in one season so far in the Marlins system. Of course, we're going to start with most would say the centerpiece of the deal. You, you could argue it was Brinson. Or you could argue it was Monty Harrison. I think it's Monty Harrison. He, I think he has the highest ceiling. He also led all of the Marlins organization in strikeouts this past season. But definitely showed his athleticism. Showed his power. Hit walk-off home runs. He hit home runs as far as anyone in the organization. Obviously the strikeouts are a big problem. Is this something that you think he can cut down on? Uh, or is he always I think be he will always be a high volume guy strikeout guy, but pace. I don't think that you know what you asked was mutually exclusive. I don't think that uh he can't get better. I think he can get better. I just think he will always to some degree be a uh hot and cold swing and miss guy, but by the same token uh our senior evaluator uh John Eshelman just turned in his report on monty Harrison it is and it's featured in the piece that you just mentioned. Something that John points out, the elite athleticism that, that allows dynamic speed and defensive contributions from like, a, you know, in, in, in the new age war standpoint, from a wins above replacement standpoint, that's going to provide consistent base running and defensive value. And Monty is a guy, like you said, that has the raw power that's going to run into 20 or 25 balls a year. He, he just is like, this is one of the most gifted athletes pure athletes that I've ever seen play baseball. It it doesn't mean he's the best baseball player or is going to be, but in terms of pure athleticism, like this this dude's up there with Byron Buxton in terms of just being unique. Uh he's 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 a little bit bigger than Buxton. What what makes Monty so unique is he's like a linebacker that can run like a center fielder and has power like this. But um, you know, so there's there's a lot of selling points. I love this type of player, you know, this type of high uh high ceiling high reward type of guy. I think this is where you get your all-stars. If you want to be a World Series contender, this is the type of tool set that impacts the major league level. But with that comes a lot of risk and uh, how much he's able to hit and how long it's going to take. I think those are valid questions. I think some of the struggles uh, that Marlins fans saw Lewis Brinson go through, some of the ups and downs, I would it, it, it wouldn't shock me if Monty uh, dealt with some of those same things. I think both of these two are going to be a lot of fun to watch develop in the outfield together for the Marlins in these next couple of years. And if things go the right way, um, you know, the Marlins could really have two 
uh, three win, three plus win guys on their hands every year. But again, that's a big if because both Brinson and Harrison carry, you know, that high risk, high reward swing and miss profile. It's really exciting between those two guys of how athletic that outfield could potentially be. You mentioned how long uh, you kind of brought up my next question a little bit. It's a difficult question to answer because it's obviously dependent on his performance. But assuming Harrison improves slightly, but not vastly, what do you think his timeline is to get to the bigs if he's still hitting in the mid 200s, but putting up that 15 yeah. to 20 home run amount every, um, every I think season? So be, find the pros. I think we're looking what at him in the big is? leagues at the absolute earliest, probably this time next year. Um, would it shock me if he's not ready by this time next year? No, like it, it, this, he, he could be a 2020 kid and you could argue that someone like him that needs as, about as many reps as he can get in the minor leagues in terms of just getting game at bats, uh, should wait until 2020 from a service time uh, and competitive window standpoint. So uh, that, that, that's, that's kind of what I'll no, there's there's absolutely no reason. And there's no reason for the Marlins so to rush him. He, uh, it, it, it would not surprise me at all if he got an entire season uh, in AAA next year. And I wasn't really planning on talking about Brinson much, but you mentioned that you gave him kind of your vote of confidence. Is Do you think that he can cut down on that because. swing a little bit too? I think he has a lot of the same present issues as Harrison. But do you, are yeah, you I'm, I'm, I'm confident at the very least that Lewis is the type of guy that's going to put the work in. Um, he's a A-plus guy off the field. He's a terrific worker. He's a high-character individual. And uh, I, I know that the intangibles are there to put the work in to make those changes. And he's the type of athlete that I think that's entirely possible. I just think both these guys, it might take a little bit longer. Um, you might see them, quote, kind of come out of the blue uh, and maybe post some numbers after falling off the map. Like it would, I, I guess what I'm saying is it, it wouldn't shock me if both of these guys kind of come on strong, not in their age 22, 23, 24 seasons, but these are the types of guys that blossom into a very productive player, but maybe age 25, 26, 27. I don't know. Time will tell. But uh, that's that's kind of how they've both always struck me. Another intriguing piece that came over in that Yelich deal, Eisen Diaz, uh, did looks really good in Double A, uh, high on base percentage, works really deep in the counts, was able to get on base plenty, works some walks, strikes out a fair amount, but flashes a lot of power for the second base position. Easily could hit fifteen, uh, ten to fifteen home runs a year, uh, which is which is great at the second base position and plays plays a good second base, but he really struggled in Triple A. Hit 205 in his 50 plus games in AAA after getting promoted. Uh, is that something the Marlins should be worried about? Uh, I know he's young; he's only 21 years old. But the struggle from AA to AAA is that something that that's alarming at yeah, all? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I I, I I think it's something to be mindful to get of. Called up to the um, I think that there's he's always had some aggression in his profile, uh, some swing and miss, and maybe trading some trading some contact to get the power, but there's good juice in the bat for a guy his size. He's only about 5'10", 
Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I think of anything, it just illuminates some of the things he still needs to work on. Um, like I mentioned earlier, senior evaluator, John Eshelman saw plenty of Diaz this year in the Southern league. And that's just basically what he came back with was saying that the, the tools to hit are there. And, uh, this guy's got good pop for a second baseman, but by the same token, he, uh, he trades a little bit of that hit tool to get to some of that power. And there's some over-aggression and swing and miss that to some degree probably won't ever come out of the profile. But Diaz does look uh, pretty developed as a guy that projects to the big leagues, and I think he's going to be the second baseman of the future. What do you think his timeline is? Because before the AAA stint, I, I easily could have seen him in the bigs as soon as next season. I still think there's a chance, obviously, if he's hitting the ball next year. Is that ambitious to think that he could be in the major leagues next season? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it might be a little ambitious to, to say on you know, April 1st to see the starting second baseman. But by this time next year, no. I I think that barring something unforeseen, I think Diaz probably should be up next year. I mean, in, in, in some ways, I think that he, he is more polished than like Amani Harrison. And uh, of those two, he should probably get there first. Doesn't necessarily make him the better player in the long run, but... Uh, I think he's a little bit closer, and his tool set um, probably translates a little bit more immediately to the major league level. It's fascinating that the Marlins could potentially get three starters from this deal. Another another guy, potentially four, if Jordan Yamamoto continues to look uh, strong in, in his pitching outings in the minor leagues. So yeah, Yelich might win an MVP, but yeah, I mean it's it's risky. We we can argue about, about a lot of these guys whether or not they should have traded Yelich given his age, the amount of control he had left, and stuff like that. That's a fair question. What I don't think is a fair question is whether or not this was a good trade package. For all the reasons you mentioned, this was an excellent trade package, and the Brewers understood that they had to part with talent to get talent. It looks like that's just what happened here for both sides. And we're going to go into this kind of final uh, final part here where we're talking about the buy or sell. Uh, we get a lot of questions about overachieving guys, whether they should get excited about them or whether it's just a little bit of a fluke because we do see in the minor leagues, guys get hot and then they'll fall off the, the face of the earth. Um, and something that we want to hope doesn't happen to some of these guys. But one of the first ones, I want, one of the first guys I wanted to talk about is, 14th rounder, Brady Puckett, a guy you've seen play a little bit, uh, definitely overachieved, had a really good year. What did you see from Puckett? Do you think that there's something there's something there? Uh, I guess yeah, for yeah, a better is, word. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think is, how the buyer-sell comes in here. I feel like this is around the horn. Um, Brady Puckett, I'm, I'm buying on Brady Puckett as a, maybe as a roll 40 or 45, like long, long man, swing man, spot starter type. Uh, I think he had a great first full pro season. I think uh, the area scout deserves a lot of credit. Um, this guy was a 14th rounder. Uh, he's like 6'7 or 6'8, and he throws a ton of strikes, pounds downhill with fringy stuff, but I think the height and extension play everything up. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm buying him as a guy. I think he's a big leaguer. I don't know if he's a big leaguer of consequence, but I'm, I'm buying him as a big leaguer uh, down the road, yeah. 
Okay, so you, you buy yeah. that projection there. Yeah. Another guy, Lazaro Alonso. Older guy. Um <laughs> he he had a he looked really good. I mean he he hit a lot of he hit for, for average, he hit for some power. Yeah, I'm 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 selling on are, this. Are one. you buying uh, that performance? I'm selling the down that day. That can stay? I'm 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 gonna pass <laughs> I'm gonna pass on Alonzo. Um big guy, big left handed raw power, uh hits the ball a mile at five o'clock in batting practice, but uh, I don't see the hit tool and the on-base ability against better pitching for that to translate, so I'm selling. Jeff Brigham, guy overachieved, got himself to the big leagues. It's a pretty nice story. Looked, got roughed up in his first outing in the bigs. Looked better in the second outing, but I, I, I watched that entire start and – not to be a pessimist, but to me, it looked like he, he got away with a lot. Uh, I don't know if the stuff is there. Uh, Are you yes, buying on Jeff Brigham being I, able to stay I in the big leagues? I will buy him as a player that can spend a full season on a major league roster at some point in his career. Um, maybe I, you, you know this better than me. Does he go into spring training next year with a chance to compete for a rotation spot? Yeah, yeah, and that's not. I think it's going to be an open race situation. About yeah, 10 guys. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll so say this. Definitely, you know, be, I think if if he's your that. five starter, um, you're probably not a playoff club in terms of the quality of your rotation, given how much pitching depth is generally needed to get a team there these days. Um, but I do think, you know, maybe, maybe same as Puckett, that, that same type of profile. Yeah. I think Brigham hangs around the big leads. I think he knows how to compete and throws enough strikes that maybe he's a long man or a spot starter for a better team. Another guy, Tommy Eveld just came over <laughs> in, in a trade at the deadline, uh, was a quarterback at USF. <laughs> Picked up baseball a little late. Now now he's a reliever. He looks good. But it's a really intriguing story. <laughs> and it's definitely it's definitely questionable in some regard because on one end of the on one side of things, you know, he doesn't have that many miles on his arm. He wasn't playing baseball as much as probably most guys at his level were. Uh, but on the flip side, he looks pretty developed for for a guy that hasn't been pitching as long as probably most of the most of his counterparts. Uh, he's kind of assumed that closer role. He's looked pretty uh, good. I'm probably is this selling a guy on could, back to the bullpen yeah, reliever, but I'll, reliever I'll buy it in, as a middle in the major leagues. Okay, that's a, that's a safe answer, and I'm going to throw one more in here because <laughs> I, I I didn't think about him until I started talking about deadline moves. Bryson Brigman uh, hit really well with with the Marlins in his 17 games. He hit 338 in Jupiter, and he hit 310 in 12 games in Jacksonville. Uh, hit 304 before the trade uh, with I the buy Mariners. I a big leader. Uh, I'm not sure if he's an everyday guy, though. He does just keep that? on performing, keep on performing. I think he'll need probably a full season of this type of performance at double A or higher for me to buy him as a candidate to be an everyday guy at the big lead level. But yeah, I, I think uh, Brigman's going to be a big leader. I just think ultimately it might be a nice utility guy, but we'll see. 
And the Marlins seem to do a pretty good job of getting these these fringe type of prospects that end up overachieving a little bit and, and becoming pretty good players that could potentially be role players in the bigs, but none of them seem to be impact guys. Uh, and that's something that the Marlins need to improve upon. Uh, the farm system's obviously vastly improved, but you said in your in your write-up, which we will, uh, as I said before, have links for, for everyone listening t- to read, that the Marlins obviously don't have an elite system yet. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. Do you think that the Marlins need to be pressed a little bit to, to try and add some prospects to their system in regards to maybe trading a JT Real Muto? I know this conversation seems to come up. Uh, pretty often he looks like one of the best catchers, if not the best catcher in the major leagues. But the Marlins are still far from where they need to be as a guy that's evaluated their pretty much almost their entire system. Uh, do you think that they need to trade a guy like Rio Muto? You know, to, I think it should go either way. System, or can um, they just bank on the draft and international? You know, side? need to is kind of uh, the 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 way you phrase that. If I'm being nitpicky, there's there's some gray area, but. You know, I I think from a philosophical standpoint, what I've wondered from the outside is I think yeah. if you, you know, moving Stanton, I, I, I understand that completely, why they had to do that. Um, I think you can make the argument about whether they should have moved Ozuna and Yelich, but I think that once those two go, like especially if you're not going to be able to extend Real Muto, and I think the talk is that maybe the real Muto camp is a bit more amenable to that than they were at the outset of the season. My, my guess is that's something that you would know the, the, the latest on more than me. But um, unless you're able to lock him up, especially if you're not, you've already come down the road this far. So I think it really doesn't make a lot of sense to not be able to lock up real Muto but hold on to the player after flipping or getting rid of Ozuna and Yelich, um, you know, for the same reason. So I'll I'll kind of talk about you know whether whether there's another influx of prospects added to this system or not. It absolutely does depend on whether or not they flip Real Muto because there's probably not another big leaguer that would yield the same type of return. Um, but you know if you're asking me what does this system need to be a I don't know I'm guessing you're asking like a top five system. It probably needs an impact prospect. Uh, I. Th- I think there was a time I thought Monty Harrison could have been that guy. I think he's always going to be a top three prospect in this system. I don't know if he's ever really going to make enough contact to be a true top 20, top 25 guy in the game at any point such that he would be considered a real like headline prospect that could push a system that has as much depth as the Marlins have into the top five. Um, but, you know, so I'll, I, I, I know I'm giving murky answers here. I'll, I'll say, though, that uh, their draft picks and where they're going to pick and the international pool they're going to have and what ownership is stated as a newfound commitment to signing players in Latin America, I think uh, this is a system that's, you know, probably in that maybe ninth to 12th overall range. We haven't ranked the systems yet. We're going to have that later this offseason at 2080. Um, but you know, in, in order to move up, um, they're probably going to need, uh, you know, one more cream of the crop type guy, but they're going to have the chance to add that both in the draft internationally. So we'll see definitely a much better system. 
uh, one that's on the upswing and one that's in the top half uh, in the major leagues for sure. A lot of depth. And the thing that you did mention, the Marlins have set themselves up pretty well to make some international moves, second most pool money only to the Orioles. Uh, and now, as we've seen, Victor Victor Mesa has been cleared as a free agent. you got a couple other guys that the Marlins could potentially go after. Uh, that He could be an impact guy. And, of course, if they, they do well in the draft again, all of a sudden the system could be a, a top, top five to eight system. Um, any other content? that we can expect from 2080, you mentioned having the top 30 or ranking the 30 systems. Uh, that's something that everyone loves to see. It's always exciting to see where your team stacks up. You mentioned the Marlins are nine to 12. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. Uh, Any other we, content well, we, from we release that prospects, video scouting the, reports uh, days? Uh, and player scouting spotlights every day at 2080 baseball. And to see all of our content, you should check out uh, our, our libraries for all of those individually. But in terms of Marlins-related content, uh, like you've been kind enough to mention and link to with this podcast, we released a uh, recap of the 2018 season for a lot of the top prospects and shared all of the video and scouting content that we have from the organization. Later this offseason, we're going to have um, a top 15 for every org in baseball, uh, have those ranked 1 to 30, and then obviously have uh, – our end of the year top 125 prospects. So uh, check us out. It's 2080baseball.com. The Twitter handle is 2080ball. And I am 2080adam, 2080adam on Twitter. Thanks for reading. You beat me to it. I was about to <laughs> just send your Twitter, share your Twitter handle right now. because. This is you guys really do have probably the best video around on prospects. So if anyone listening really wants to see firsthand what these guys look like, I mean that twenty eighty ball is a place to go. Adam, it's always a pleasure to have you on. It's always so much fun to get your opinion on these guys. I don't think anybody follows <laughs> specifically even the Greensboro guys. I don't know. I, I'd be hard pressed to find someone that knows more about the Greensboro guys than yeah, you. Yeah, it's it's uh, my pleasure so much too. for coming on and coming talking about them. And, uh, thank you. I'm sure we'll have you on in the near future. It's always a pleasure. Th thank you so much, Adam.